0: just uh, want to take a, a second here if, if you guys are willing to let me hear um, I want to pray for someone who's not here um, but I want someone to stand in proxy for them if, if we can do that so Amanda if you would you mind coming forward we want to pray for Rena and Wesley and um, so you ladies that have made covenant with the church just come lay hands on her and um, we'll pray for rena and wesley right now they're going through a really rough time and we want the lord to show himself strong Um, for those of you who don't know rena um, got saved a few weeks ago and she's got a son who's um, basically in hospice he's only got days to live and um, so we're believing for a miracle but we're also believing for peace no no matter what happens Um, so father we just come to you right now for this precious young boy whom you've given life to and the enemy seeks to snuff it out but we know that you can't be snuffed out Father so we release you into this situation we release life and love into this situation because that's who you are you are love so we ask the embodiment of God himself to come into this young boy and bring healing and bring a restorative miracle. We know that you are the God who heals. It is your name. And we call forth the authority of heaven right now. And we release healing from heaven to earth. And we command the earth to obey the kingdom of God. And this young man. And Father we just pray for his mother right now. That the spirit of grace and peace would be upon her. And God, that you would begin to just move in our heart only the way you can. Holy Spirit, begin to bring peace and rest into that home. And may the testimony of Jesus shine and that the enemy would steal nothing from this family. We agree and we believe and we thank you, Father, for your word because it endures forever. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your power. We thank you for the transfer of the miracle. We thank you for a good report. And Father, we thank you for your heart being established and released into this situation. That hope would rise. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. (laughs)
1: Perfect. <laughs> I just want to speak in faith right now. It's the holidays, it's Thanksgiving. And sometimes these times are hard. Sometimes they're great. But I want to speak for the families. I want to speak for the families that don't have the loved ones home. I want to speak peace over into those families. I want to call the prodigals home. I want to call them home. spirit would you just move on their hearts would you just move on their hearts right now Lord would you love them I come praying abundance of love on those that struggle with it during these times oh it's the holidays no it's time to share Jesus it's time to share that love that you planted inside me it's time to share that spirit inside me that cries out Abba In agreement, Lord, that families will be renewed through these holidays this year. You are the Redeemer, you are the Restorer. It will be done in Jesus' name.
0: Father, we thank you for your goodness. We stand upon your truth and your power. We thank you for your plan and your purpose. And we just take a moment to bless you and honor you and thank you for who you, who you are and what you've always been to us because you never change. So we ask for your grace in this moment to hear, open our eyes. Cover the shame of our nakedness. Open our ears. Move us away from assumption into true recognition of who you are. And we would abandon our ideas of you for the reality of who you show yourself to be. We thank you for your word and your son and your cross that makes all possible to know you and to be as you are in this world. We thank you. We love you. We honor you. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. How's everybody doing okay? I'm glad you're here. I, uh, it's always a a blessing for me to be with the people that God loves. I, um, I know that sometimes we don't see as much value in us as he sees, but it's there. If you have children and you want to send them back, you can. If you want to keep them with you, that's totally fine too. There is some classes in the back that they can go to, um, If you're a child at heart, you might enjoy that more than this. There's less toe-stepping on back there. So, fair warning. I'm not here to coddle your religion or your theology. I'm here to lift up the name of Jesus. I'm not here to bow to your opinions and your hermeneutical expressions of what you think the Word of God says. I'm here to show you who He was, is, and who He always will be. Does that make sense? At the end of the day, outside of him, we're all just trying to understand who he is. Some of us get it wrong. Sometimes we accidentally get it right and then take way too much credit for it. But he's still king and he's still God. And we are his people. And many times we're just a bunch of little kids running around, think we got it all together, and he's just chuckling like a dad watching and saying, hey, not that cute? See, your experience is pale in comparison to the Ancient of Days who watched the world form when he spoke a word. We put so much faith in what he's done for us that we miss actually who he is. You with me? See, because who he is is always there. It was there before he even did anything for us. The totality of all of his power and his awesomeness was comprised in God himself without creation. He always was, he always is, he always will be in full capacity. And creation was just one smidgen of an expression of who he was. It wasn't the defining point of God Himself. It was just a whisper into time to create something to give us a small understanding of who He is in magnitude. And yet we take the creation that He has made and define Him ultimately by it when He is way more than that. And our limited theology is based upon what? Our experiences with Him. How many of you know, heaven will be full of experiences that will cause everything we've ever experienced on this earth to completely grow dim. And we'll find that we have based our entire understanding of who God was on something that he did and not who he was. And therefore, when we see him as he is, we're going to melt because everything of our framework of understanding him will be completely removed. All the scriptures we boasted in, our little origins of what we think we are, and our little denominations... (laughs) will be just based upon a ripple from a stone he threw in the water. I don't want my faith to be in my theology. I want it to be in his blood. Because as I grow in him, he changes my theology all the time. And everything I thought I knew, about every three to five years, I have to just scrap it and go, you know what? I don't know anything, but I know you were crucified. And I know I was put to death on that cross, and I know you love me. And everything else doesn't matter. Amen. The value that God places on us was the reason he created the world. See, what God does last is why he did what he did first. He didn't make man and then decide to make a world to put him in. The last shall be... What's the last thing he made? Why? Because what we see in creation is the value that he placed in us. What he put in this world was for the value He saw in us. I don't know if that makes your mind bend, but every sunrise, every photographer that manages to capture a photo that just completely mesmerizes your ability to even think it's possible, was God saying, this is the value I'm making and I'm putting you in that value because it's not value, you're the value. And you deserve so much more than what you Uh, have given yourself so I'm going to give you more isn't that crazy and we cheapen it down to trying to be like everybody else and we cheapen this whole gospel trying to be like the world and trying to make it relevant to the world And the world doesn't want you to be relevant to it it wants you to come and offer it hope and life So in the value of God, there's, there's, a, there's an assignment from the enemy to steal the value. Because if the enemy can get you to identify with your sin and your failure, then you're not able to identify with who he made you to be. And there's no greater power to get you to identify with your sin than shame. Shame. Shame is a thief that steals the value of God that He placed inside of you. Because when you are filled with shame, you abandon who God made you to be and you believe in what the devil says about you. In other words, you become one with your sin. You think that you are the things that you've done wrong. You with me? See, my Bible says that in John 1, to as many as believed in him, gave he them power to become the sons of God. It doesn't say he gave them power to become saved sinners. And I know that's a really popular theology that you're just a sinner and you're just a worm and you're just always going to be that way and bless, thank God for the blood. God doesn't die for trash. He came to give you a complete new identity. One that is completely divorced from the sin nature that you possessed before him. And if you identify with what he crucified, you're robbing God of his victory and glory in your life. Shame doesn't just steal from you, it robs him. When you allow shame, you allow a robber into the house of God to take the valuable sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your life. There's a massive difference between shame and conviction. Shame works with condemnation, Conviction works with restoration. How many of you guys understand that even as a believer, you're going to do things in this life that are wrong? See, that's the ignition point. That's the point where everything is determined and decided. After you do something wrong, after you realize you've screwed up, after you realize you weren't good enough, after you realize you failed, whether it's even in a pure way in ministry where you should have done this and you didn't and the person died or something happened. When you do something wrong, that's the ignition point of where God is able to either have access to your life or the enemy. What you believe in that moment determines the direction of your trajectory. And shame is trying to rob us of our value and convince us that we have nothing of value to offer the king. You know why? Because we don't value the things that heaven values. We value what the earth values. The bigger the church, the more successful the pastor, true or not, in the the earthly society. The smaller the church, the more of a lost cause that he is. But do you realize it's the exact opposite in the kingdom? Do you realize that the things that got Jesus' attention were the things that we ignore? Nobody saw the, wo- the woman come to give her offering. It was half a penny. <laughs> we don't even have that in our currency. Like our lowest is still better than, their, than theirs, and, and she comes and she throws that in the basket, and no, nobody saw it but Jesus. See, we value what the enemy says is important. And so when you see that your hands are full of ash and shame, you think you have nothing to offer God, when in reality, that's exactly what God requires. How many of you know the cross is not valuable unless there's a context of sin? See, most Christians spend their entire life trying not to use the blood that was freely given. And they call that holiness. If your efforts are trying to keep you from doing something wrong, you definitely will do something wrong. Holiness isn't doing something wrong. It's acting like God in the midst of something that's going wrong. Where do we get holiness from? From ourselves? From him. There's no man in here that can generate, no woman in here can generate your own holiness through your own religion, through staying away from sin. Because even if you keep your hands and your feet from it, if your heart's full of it, you still committed it. Jesus proved that. And he said, listen, doesn't, see some people, I've never committed adultery. You have a thousand times, sir. In your heart. You with me? There's not a man in here, including myself, that hasn't committed adultery in their heart. But you know what we do? We applaud the man who never does it. And we demonize the man who has. When both of them are guilty of the same crime. Because we value what the world values. Am I saying we should go out and commit adultery? No, I'm not saying that. Of course not. But I'm saying that we value something different than heaven, which means when we value something different than the kingdom of heaven does, we have a wrong perception of what God values. Therefore, we characterize God in a way that he's not actually represented. We begin to create him in a way he doesn't actually exist in our mind. We begin to worship something that isn't actually real. Those of you who don't know me, and you only know me from, from here. Maybe you're just here for the first time, or maybe you've only been a few times. The only part of, my, of me you know is this right here. My wife would tell you, tell you, you don't know him. True or not? Yes. What you know of me is what you create in your head because there's no relationship. And it's either going to be way up here or way down there. Mostly it's way down there. But knowing God is being able to value what God values. What does he value? He values us. Sinners, right? That's what we are? No, we're sons. That's why we have value. Does it make sense? Okay. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. And hopefully I'm going to make this make sense. I want to call this the value of ass, right? How many of you guys feel good about your life when everything's absolutely destroyed, burnt out, nothing's there? It's all just wasted. Everything you think you've learned and done for the last 10 years of your life gets completely removed. It gets completely destroyed and you have nothing to offer for any work that you've accomplished for a season of your life. Anybody love that position? Anybody ever been there? You know, I, I pastored for years and I spent like 10 or 12, 15 years of my life on this one specific church that I was pastoring. And, and, and I mean, I poured my heart and my soul and my life into it. And I, I don't, there was nothing I did um, that was unholy or unrighteous, but the whole thing fell apart and just, I was left with basically my family and two people. All burnt, just ash, just completely gone and the world just would say quit, you know. Quit. Just it's not the God's will. There's not an open door for you. It's so funny our little theologies about open doors. <laughs> well, God just opened a door, did he? Or was that you or the enemy? <laughs> Cuz all three can open doors. <laughs> you push hard enough and you can get into somebody's life even if they don't want you there. Jesus tells a story about that. This guy comes in the middle of the night, hey, give me some bread. And I got, this guy came in, he's like, eh, go away. He keeps knocking, he keeps knocking, he keeps knocking, he keeps knocking. Finally, the guy opens the door, fine, here, take it, you know. You can force doors open. And then you can spiritualize it by saying, oh, the Lord just opened this door for me. <laughs> We're so funny. You know what true open doors look like? Something you don't want to do. I get nervous when doors open that it's something I really wanted, because <laughs> I'm like, man, I don't know if I can trust that yet. Revelation chapter three. I want to, I want to read this. Uh, there's a few scriptures here. This is to the church of Laodicea, and it says, now first of all, we got to th- let's lay some context. Jesus is talking to not unbelievers. You understand this? He's talking to saved people a church of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, established under apostolic authority. One of the apostles or his uh, disciples established this church. This is not a bunch of heathens needing Jesus. These are people who have history with God and have been gathering for a while. They're not a new church. They've been around They've done some things. They've seen some things. They have the gospel. But Laodicea was a very wealthy town, extremely wealthy city. It's it's a lot like America today. In fact, they're so wealthy, there was an earthquake that happened, I can't remember exactly what year, destroyed the city, and Rome offered help to rebuild the city, and they said, no, we got it. And they built their entire town back from the earthquake with their own resources, It's interesting how much we can do without the Lord. When we become increased and we become stable and we become like everything is going good in my life, we feel like we have all this ability and all this authority and all this revelation. And Some of the most starving people in Christianity I know are the people who have been in ministry for years because they're living on old revelations that God has given them and they just build a ministry on what God said four, five, six, seven years ago and there's no, there's no word from the Lord right now. And they can build something that, you know, looks like it's the Lord, but it's without external help. So this is the church of Laodicea. And Jesus is talking to them. He says, you t- you're telling me that I'm rich, that you're rich. You're saying that you have prospered and you don't need anything. Not realizing that I see you as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's also interesting that Laodicea championed a certain salve that they, they put together that was famous, and people would come from all over to put this salve on their eyes so that they could see. And they were ministering to people and helping people and helping to heal people, and yet Jesus says, but you yourself are blind. It's interesting how much ministry we can be involved with helping others not realizing the same thing we're helping them in we are completely in need of ourselves. listen just because god puts you in somebody's life to help them and minister to them does not mean you know what you're doing ask me how i know that <laughs> but you think you do because the holy spirit's maybe moving on you at some point you're speaking you think oh yeah this this is great. And Jesus is like, yeah, but what about you? I'm moving through you for them. What about you? What about you? So this is the context. He says, you're you you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. So see, all of a sudden what we're seeing here is, is that these people see themselves differently than how God sees. They're valuing something that God does not value. There's a disconnect there. What they see as important, God does not see as important. you understand that? And just, just because of our culture alone in America, we have to guard against this because we don't need faith as much as other people do. You know why? Because you have a credit card. You have a bank that you can go get a loan for. You're rich and increased with goods. There's nothing in your life very much so unless something absolutely cataclysmic happens with health or death that causes you to stop and go, I need the Lord, and there's nothing I can do about it. We have built this culture to survive without him, to thrive without him, even as Christian people. You don't pray about the groceries. Most people don't pray about the groceries they have to go buy and ask God. Thank you. They just go buy them. Why? Because you don't need him for that. You don't think you need him for that. But you do. You just don't realize it. You become blind. And all of a sudden, when you can't buy milk, then you're going to realize, my God, I need him. And he's like, yeah, you always did. You just didn't know it. You, you following me? Yes. This is where they're at. Okay. All right. So that's established. I can move on. So the, so the lack of recognition of our true spiritual position is the biggest hindrance to our greatest possession. So these people start seeing it from Jesus, this word from God, that you don't have exactly what you think you have. You don't possess what you think you own. You don't own what you think you have a right to. I want you to do this. This is what he says. Verse 18. I'm counseling you. It's interesting because counsel, I do a lot of counseling. And you know what counseling basically is? It's advice that most people don't take. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Usually when people come for counseling, you know what? They just want me to agree with what they've already decided. And then they get mad at me when I don't. Ask me how I know. And all of a sudden, I become the bad guy for something they've already decided they're going to do. Listen, if you ever want counsel for me and you've already made your decision, please don't ask me what my opinion is. (laughs) It's just going to hurt our relationship. Because I'm going to tell you what the word of God says. Right? He says, I'm counseling you to buy from me gold refined by the fire. This, this verse has always confused me. It's always locked my brain up. Because Jesus is saying, I want you to buy something from me. I thought the gospel was free. Did I just throw a monkey wrench in your theology? Good. Good. I want you to buy something from me. I want you to buy gold refined by the fire so that you can be rich. What's God's heart for these people? So that they can be rich. He wants them, is this monetarily? No. This is in their heart and their spirit, man, to be rich and full of God. God's heart for these people was for them to be rich. They misinterpreted it and thought they actually were. Anytime you think an increase of finance is blessing, you have missed the heart of God. Right. Mm-hmm. If increase of finance happens, it's only a blessing when you give it away. Right. Why is it, why, how, do you, how do I know that? Because it's more blessed to, you yeah. hey, forgot about that part, huh? Well, I'm just blessed of the Lord. Well, then what are you giving? <laughs> yes, I could preach on tithe, yeah, I won't. People get mad when you preach on tithe, yet they walk around in a curse. That's their decision. Somebody said, well, the tithe is Old, Old Testament. Why did it start with Abraham in faith? In Genesis, we met Melchizedek before the law. Hmm. He says, I'm telling you, buy something from me that you can be rich And white garments, so that you can clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And I want you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. So, what's the heart of God here? It's not that He's rebuking them, God doesn't want to come to us with a rebuke. What His whole desire for us is to be rich, to be clothed, to be able to see Him as He is that's his design. that's why he came to this church it wasn't just to rebuke them it was to correct them so that they could come into the full expression of what he always intended for their life and there's so many people on the day of judgment they're going to stand before God never having fulfilled the ultimate intention that God created for their life he's going to look at so many people and say I made you to be a son of God and you only identified as a selfish American Judgment Day is going to be interesting. I can prove to you in Scripture that even generations will be judged, which means you're going to be lumped together with people. And he'll judge you as a generation. Oh, but my personal relationship with Jesus, that's for your salvation. But he'll judge the works of a generation. The Bible says that David fulfilled the purposes of God for his generation. If you don't fulfill the purposes of God for your generation, then you're walking around poor, miserable, wretched, blind, and naked. In other words, the Laodicean church became self-centered. Sound familiar? Not us. It's those other churches out there, right? okay see it was their pitiful condition that brought the Lord and his message to them in the first place do you understand they would have not had this interaction with Jesus if they hadn't had the condition so the word that God places over your life is not necessarily uh, a mandate it's an invitation well I've had prophecies over my life and those are invitations prophecies over your life are, are not going to happen they're conditional most prophecies are conditional, which means you have a part to play in them. And if you don't play your part, you're, why aren't those prophecies coming to pass? Are you posturing yourself so that they can come to pass through you? See, the presence of Jesus is, is you, you ever been to a church service where so the anointing is there? You know, and you think, oh, this is so awesome, you know. Oh, this is so great. God is just, oh, I love you so much. And Do you know why the anointing is there? It's not because you're doing everything right. I promise you that it's because it's an invitation to a greater purpose but most people selfishly absorb the anointing in the presence as if it's a condoning of where they're currently at that what we're doing is right so therefore the presence of the Lord is here now the presence of the Lord is here because he wants to bring you to another greater glory and if you don't come up into that then you're staying where you are which means you're not following him and where he's called you to be thereby making a disconnect between you and him and you'll fill that disconnect with religion So anytime the Lord touches you and you feel His presence on your life, <laughs> pay attention. It's not because you're doing so great. He's there to say, "I want you higher." But so many people are like, "Oh, we have the anointing in our church." Why? The anointing breaks the yoke of bondage of sin. Why is the anointing present? Because sin's present. In this room right now, there's so much sin in people's lives. There's people sleeping together, there's people doing stuff, there's people, there's there's so much sin in people's lives right here. Why does Jesus show up? Because he's agreeing with how you're living? No, because he wants you to come up higher. There's Matthew seven, these people come to Jesus having done all these things, and he said and they say, Well, look, we we ate and drank in your presence. Like we like you you moved in our church services, bro. Like Come on. He's like, I don't know how you are. It's amazing. It's going to be an absolutely horrible day for those people who have actually experienced the presence of God, only to be completely eternally separated from it for forever. Having experienced one of the greatest glories you could ever experience, and now being put into the lowest parts of hell, where the reason it is hell is because he is nowhere near there. So, so God counsels us to buy from him things that are, that, that, that are from him. But with what? What's the currency that we do this verse? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. What do you have that he needs? What currency is he asking for? How, what do I use to be able to buy this from him? It, you would think it would be faith. I thought it was for a long time, too. You would think it would be love. Those things are of him. Why does he need what he, what's already his? He doesn't need what's already his. It's not faith. It's not obedience. It's not love. It's not any of that thing. Obedience is the fruit of love. It's not separate from love. You don't obey and then get love and then obey. You obey because you love. You can't say, if you separate love and obedience, you create religion. What is it that he wants? He wants your ashes. He wants your sin. He wants the darkness. He wants the stuff you're ashamed of. He wants the disgust and the filth because that's what's keeping you from him and that's what he requires to have all of him. And shame will tell you that God has left you and you have nothing in your life to offer him when you have everything that he actually wants. You can't love God without God. It's impossible. He is love. He says, I'm counseling you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so that you can be rich. What's his desire? That you can be rich. In other words, how you get rich is you buy riches with your poverty. Poverty. Some of you are kind of going, huh? I don't understand. That's the kingdom. I'll prove it to you here in scripture a little bit more, okay? How do you buy clothing with your nakedness? How did you get salvation? By offering him your sin. Was it by faith? Sure it was by faith. But you offered him who you were without him so that he could give you who you are with him. You offered him the old man and he gave you the new man. How'd you get the new man? What was the payment? The payment was the old man. I surrender all right. Why? So that you can have his increase. You empty yourself so you can be filled what's the currency of God it's the things that we don't value see shame will tell you you have nothing but sin but shame won't tell you that that's exactly what he's requiring for you to let go of in order to have his holiness Oh, my goodness. He says, those who I love, verse 19, I rebuke and I discipline. I mean, I like that part of the relationship with Jesus. Well, I just have a personal relationship with Jesus. Then your backside should be pretty nice and red. Because mine always is. That's how I know he loves me. People get offended because I step on their toes when I've got my butt whipped before I stepped on their toes. I'd rather have a toe stepping than a butt whipping. Oh, this is spiritual, y'all. I'm telling you. I'm on a roll. He says, so therefore... Be zealous and change how you think. In other words, start valuing what I value and then you'll be increased with what I have and what I possess. Let me ask you, let me say this to me. Have you ever been disconnected with God through a sin that you've committed in your life as a Christian and you knew it it separated you from him? What was the thing that finally brought you back? It was the surrender of the sin. When you let it go, all of a sudden your hands are filled with something else. Yet the devil will just tell you about the disgust of the sin that's in your hands and never tell you that that's the thing that he's requiring in order to have the relationship restored. You ever read Romans 8 28? All things meant for evil will be turned towards the good. What is more evil than sin? I have watched as a pastor for over 25 years, God used sin in people's lives to bring them to his feet. And people who couldn't be broken by sermons and, and preaching and anointing and falling out in the Holy Spirit were completely broken by the sin in their life. Remember that woman that was drugged to the feet of Jesus? I preached a sermon about this, I don't know, six, eight months ago. Remember that woman that was brought to the feet of Jesus? What brought her to the feet of Jesus? Was it her love for God, her faith, her obedience, her kindness, her goodness, her gentleness, and all the things? What, what brought her to the king? Yeah, yeah sin does a really good job. Of placing you right where you need to be and God knows it the enemy just doesn't want to tell you that because if he tells you that then you realize you have something that he values even though you don't value it he values it not because it's valuable but because he wants to give you something in place of it see God is convinced of the power of his blood there is no sin it can't touch it can makes it completely disappear and him look at you and say, it is as if though you have never done it. You with me? He says, so, this is verse 20. Just whew, I guess maybe I read the Bible different than some people, but this messes with my head. How does God, who owns everything, and he had cattle on a thousand hills, measured the sea in the palm of his hands, knows the numbers of stars in the sky, which is absolutely impossible to know other than him. All these things, and he's standing at your door knocking. I would think that he has the authority to open doors. Well, God just opened the door of my life. How about you open one for him? He's big enough to open your door. He's just gentleman enough not to force his way in. What is a door? It's something that separates two realms. Why is he on the outside in the first place? That's my question. Is he talking to unsafe people? Why is Jesus on the outside of the door of his own church. Because our little four walls, our little family, our four no more, our little life, our little riches, our little thing, we're completely satisfied with and we think we're doing just fine just exactly where we are. My little revelations, my history with Jesus, my... I don't care if you've been walking with him for 60 years. John the Revelator did, and he still called him up higher in the end. He says, come up higher. And he saw Jesus in a new way that he'd never seen him before. Don't tell me about what happened yesterday. Prophesy into your future and open the door for the king. Religion's built upon the things that happened yesterday. That's the essence of moldy manna, is creating something that God did yesterday and keeping it alive and up in front of everybody and trying to feed it to them. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, didn't he just say that they were blind? But they weren't deaf. Deaf. So even if you're lacking at one point in your life and you've, you've, you've conditioned yourself to be a certain way and locked yourself away, there's still some way he's going to try to meet you that you can have access to him with. If you shut every other door of your life, he'll find the one that you've left open and he'll say, Can you hear me? Well, I can't see you in my life. Can you hear me? Why? Because he's good. And he's constantly pursuing you even though you're not pursuing him. Can you hear me? If he opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he will eat with me. And the one who conquers, listen to this. This is amazing to me. Remember that, remember that story of those two disciples that were like, hey, we want to sit next to you at your, in, the, in your kingdom. We you want to sit at your right hand. He's like, hey, are you willing to suffer the way I'm going to suffer? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're willing. Even though he's like, sure. <laughs> you have no clue what you're asking for. And he says, however, I can't, I can't grant you that request. That's only granted by my father. But here's what he says. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. just as I've conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He says, if you beat these things and you let me into your life and you give me the thing that you do not want about yourself so that I can give you the thing that I want about me in you and you overcome this and you conquer this in your life, you will sit next to me at my father's right hand. Such a powerful position for this, for the for the least. Go read all the churches of Revelation he wrote he read he wrote letters to. This is the worst of, of, of them all. <laughs> if there's any church you didn't want want to be a part of in those levers, it's it's this one. And yet he reserves one of the greatest honors for these people who are so far away from him. Some scholars say that these churches represent the ages. And that Laodicea represents our current age, the last age where he's going to come back. And it is interesting that the American church is more aligned with Laodicea than any other of the other churches that he talked to. So you understand that your personal relationship with Jesus may be actually blinding you from the fact that you are blind and wretched and miserable and naked. How do you get that? How do you get away from that? You offer him the opposite. You agree with God and you say, yes, however, your clothing, your healing, your eyesight is mine. And I'm offering you my ashes for your beauty. You with me? Okay, let's move on. All right. So the Laodiceans had something in their possession that God required in order to have access to his goods. It was their brokenness. It was their wretchedness. It was the ash of their lives trying to do without God, the thing it takes God to do. With me? So in the Old Testament, there was, they would take a red heifer, which was uh, significant of Jesus being pure, and they would take it and they would um, kill it in the presence of the priests outside the camp. They would take it outside the religion, outside the walls, outside the temple. And they would kill it. And they would burn everything, most of the things that we thought were valuable. The meat, the skin. And they kept the entrails. But they burned the rest of it. And when they burned it, there was nothing but ash left. And the next day, they took the ash and they put it outside a camp in what Leviticus calls a clean place. And they mixed that ash with water And that water was sprinkled on people who were defiled. Interesting. Remember when the Bible says that he washed us with the water of the word? Who's the word? So he washed us with the water of himself. When the water was mixed with the ash, sanctification was complete. When he is mixed with your failure, you're made clean. But the devil will tell you, well, you're outside the camp. You're an outsider. You're nothing. You're, you're a sinner. You realize that's where you have to be to be sacrificed? Where was Jesus sacrificed? Outside religion. Outside man's understanding of God. Outside of the realm of the safety of what we knew about Abba. He was crucified outside of that, as a foreigner. Why? Because he was a foreigner. He comes from a different realm. Where are you from now? A different realm. So when the enemy tells you that you're outside the camp, I'm postured exactly where Jesus was. Well, you're just, your life's full of ash. Then all I need is his water. And it's interesting that when those two were mixed together, it was able to be applied not just to the one person, but to many. When the brokenness and the ash of your life is mixed with him, it doesn't just heal you, it heals everybody around you. His perfect sacrifice, with the failure and the ash of your life, creates something that sanctifies a generation. And here we are just trying to be good for God. Live holy where you can, but where you can't, take that ash, and you bring it to him and say, I'm not going to assume and pretend that I'm better than what I am here. I need you. I need your word. I need you in my life, and I need the mixture, and I'm giving you the the nothing that I see that I have that obviously you value, and it's yours. See, until you give something that God wants, you can't get what he's going to give. Again, it comes back to valuing the wrong thing. We don't value the ash. We're ashamed of it, so we keep it from him thereby keeping the purification from us and others. In the Old Testament, they called it the water of purification. It was the sacrifice of the ash mixed with the water. When you don't give God what you don't think is valuable, he can't do what he's designed to do. This, (laughs) Ah, y'all help me out, please. I'm trying to change how you think so that sin doesn't keep running your relationship with the king. That when something's exposed into your life and you realize you have an issue and a problem now, you don't go into self-pity and rejection and dejection and blame and try to be better next time. You take what the world says is invaluable and you bring it to God and say, if this is what you want, I freely give it. Because you died for whatever you want in my life. And if you want my junk, then it's yours. It's yours. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm not going to run from it. I'm not going to pretend I don't have it. I'm going to give it to you freely and wholly, and I'm not going to run from you because I have it. Religion will tell you to run from God when you're not right with him. That's why people stay away from church the moment they fall away. There's nothing about religion that they want because they don't feel open to come to him. They feel like they've broken all the rules. You can't have him as the rule keeper until you understand that you are the rule breaker. And when you come and meet those two together, something new is born. Shame has way too much influence in the church of Jesus. Should you feel convicted about your sin? Absolutely. That is the spirit of God calling you out of it into him. But should you be condemned? No. What do I do if I fall into sin? You stand back up and say, in Jesus I am not my sin, I am a son. And God, I'm offering this part of my life to you that obviously isn't been crucified completely, so I'm asking for the water for your purification, my ash for your beauty. And then what you're going to begin to see is that every sin that the enemy tries to put on you to beset you actually moves you closer to him. And then you tell me, What's the devil have to manipulate you with after that? There's one thing that I've learned to do in my life. is when the enemy hits me, it awakens a warrior inside of me, and I begin to fight all the harder. Whereas most people curl up into self-pity and quit, there is nothing more dangerous to a warrior than smacking him in the face. Because to the devil, I don't have to turn the other cheek. So when I see him attacking my life or somebody in my in my life that I love, I get on my knees and I begin to battle things out with God. And I begin to stand and I begin to release the authority. Listen, when the enemy comes at you, there is a response that's appropriate. And it's not shame and self pity. If you find yourself involved with and doing something that is displeasing to God, give it to him. He values what you do not. Did you hear what I just said, what they did in Leviticus and Numbers? Listen, they, they kept the entrails. They kept the guts. Who here deer hunts? What's the first thing you do? You cut out the guts and throw them away. Why? Because you do not value them. Unless you're eating some of the organs, but who here eats the intestines? Anybody? <laughs> One hand, you're a brave woman. You're also pregnant, so that might account for that. <laughs> My point is, is that we don't value what he values, and we devalue what he values. He wants the guts. We want the meat and the flesh. He wants the meat and the flesh burnt. He wants the guts. He wants your junk, he wants he wants your dung. He wants the things in your life that you don't think are valuable. How do we miss this in the Old Testament? How do we miss it? How did we miss it? We missed it. We missed it as a church. We think, you know, listen, God is gonna give himself what he wants through your life if you surrender. But if you're working for him, he'll make sure you fail. Ask me how I know. It's better to work with him and not for him. Because for him creates something inside of me that puts the responsibility on me. I'm destined to fail at that point. But if I work with him, that's a completely different story. So, his ash... Our ashes beauty, right? Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. This is Jesus, right? Good tidings to the, to the meek, the broken, the humble. Right? He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You can't get bound up unless you're brokenhearted. I try to put a bandage on my hand. When it's not cut, I'm going to take it off. I don't want it. I don't need it. It's in the way. With me? The wound introduces me to the healer. You with me? Yes. Well, I want to know you, God. He's like, really? Okay, then you need to know me as healer. In other words, you're going to have to be broken before I can, you can know me as healer. Well, I don't want to be broken well, then you can't know me as healer. Well, I know you as Savior and Deliverer, that's great, but you'll never know me as healer. See, so many people are, you know, God's a chain breaker, a miracle. Yeah, uh, that's part of who he is, but what about the rest of him that you don't know? You see, if your relationship with God is, is revolving around the fact that he freed you from drugs, you have a very small God. I'm not saying that's insignificant. I'm just saying it's not a complete package of who he is. He's much bigger than that. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives. You don't get liberty unless you're captive. Opening the prison to them that are bound, you don't know him as the prison opener until you're bound, right? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Who wants to mourn? Not me, but I'll never know him as a comforter unless I do. You with me? To give them beauty for ashes, verse 3. Oil of joy for mourning. What's the, what's the exchange here? What's he saying? Remember Revelation 3. Buy from me gold tried in the fire. What's the exchange? He says, I'm going to give you beauty for ashes. How do you get beauty? You buy it with your ashes. How do you get it? You transfer what you don't think is valuable for what is. Does it make sense to you? Yes. The oil of joy for mourning. How do you get the oil of joy? The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. How do you get the garment of praise? You give him your spirit of heaviness. How come we don't do that? We just, you know what happens when a spirit of heaviness comes on us? We make it worse by inviting a spirit of self-pity to make it feel better. <laughs> and then you realize with your spirit of self-pity, nobody cares. And then when you realize nobody cares, you're like, well, nobody loves me. And God's like, hello. I'm here. I'm knocking. Let me in. No, Lord, I prefer self-pity. You think that sounds funny here, but you know how many people I counsel? That live days, weeks, months, even years swimming in self pity as believers. Sometimes it's actually, to me, sometimes it's nauseating. It's like you dug a pit and you jumped in and you can get out anytime you want, you just won't. To appoint them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, so that he can be glorified. That's the goal. So he can be glorified in your life. Well, he can't be glorified unless he does something that you can't do, which is to convert ash into beauty. I said this a few weeks ago, but you guys understand that in horticulture... If you don't have potassium in soil there's no fruit. If soil's deficient of potassium there's going to be no fruit production. You know what potassium comes from? Old timers, you remember your grandfathers or whatever sprinkling ash on their gardens? Why? Because that's where potassium comes from. See, you don't think ash is valuable when everything's burned out of your life and you have nothing left and everything's completely destroyed and broken and there's no hope and there's no dream there's no future for you and it's all been destroyed. God says, this is exactly the ground that I'm going to plant in. I'm just waiting for you to believe it. And they shall build old wastes. They shall raise up former desolations and they shall repair waste cities and the desolation of many generations. Do you see what's happening here? They transfer what they don't like about themselves for what he has for them. And then through that, everything around them is built. This is the promise of what Jesus came to do for us in the New Testament. With me? Isaiah 55 verse 1. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. He says, come, everyone who's thirsty. Come to the waters, and whoever has no money, come and buy from me and eat. Wait a minute. If I don't have money, how do I come and buy and eat? Your thirst and your hunger is the payment required. Why do you think Jesus said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled? You know what the problem with Laodicea was? Is they lost their hunger and they lost their thirst for the Lord. It's possible to be a Christian and lose that. And live a good week without sinning. Yay for you. You managed to do everything right. Except for the main thing he requires. That's Phariseeism. Giving to God all these small little things that you think are important whenever he says you've disobeyed the weightier matters of the law. Like love and justice and mercy. Nobody, God's not gonna applaud anybody for their morality on the final day. In fact, we're not gonna be judged on our morality. Our morality's safe in his blood. What we're gonna be judged by is our works. Why? Because the works are a direct offset of what you actually believe Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and if you believe the enemy you're going to do the works of the enemy what's the work of the enemy? self-pity, judgment, hate disagreement bitterness, division jealousy you know how much of that's actually in the church? you know how many people have recently come into this community and be like man I could just feel the love in here you guys as opposed to every other church they went to up to this point has been by accusation and division and there's little cliques going on. Why? Because those are the works of the devil. Good Christian people performing the works of the devil. It's possible. Jesus is talking to the church of Laodicea, Christian people. He says, come and eat and buy wine and milk without money, and without price. Verse 2, why do you spend your money? Why do you spend your ash? Why do you spend your pain? Why do you spend your rent? Why do you spend all these things that are going on in your life? Why do you spend all the failure on on things that that do not satisfy? Has self-pity ever satisfied anybody in this room? But you keep buying it. Shame, has that ever satisfied anybody in here? Anyone? Depression, unbelief, doubt, self hate, failure. Why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep taking what he's the thing that he wants and spending it on something else instead of giving it to him? When you find that your hands are full of sin, you will also find an invitation to come to the cross. But we don't come to the cross because our hands are full of sin. That's what it's for. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure in a field, Matthew 13, 44. He found it. He covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. So many people think that this is referring to us finding Jesus and giving up all of our life to have him. That's wrong. We had nothing to give up to gain him. He had everything to give up to gain us. Who is the pearl in the field? It's not him. It's us. He left everything he had. He came down here, and he dug in our dirt, and he found something valuable. He covered it back up, and he went and said, I want it. It's valuable to me. I don't care what everybody else doesn't see around. I see something in it, and I'm selling everything I have for this one field. All we see is the dirt. He sees the pearl. We don't value what he values because we don't see what he sees. Is there dirt in your life? Yep. But is there a pearl there? Yep. Which one are you going to look at? It's up to you. Religion will tell you to look at your dirt. Jesus will say, see the pearl. Jesus didn't come and died for the dirt. He came and died for the pearl. You don't die for something that's not a value. Ask the disciples. Well, You can ask them when you get there if you make it. God is not deterred by Dirt. What are you made of? If that's all you were, do you think he would die for that? See, he placed something of value inside of you. That's not all you are. You with me? In Malachi 3.3 3 says, I will sit as the refiner and purifier of silver, and I will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver that they bring forth offerings of righteousness to the Lord. See, it's his job to purify us. We just have to come. You guys ever seen metal purified? There's a bunch of nastiness that comes to the top. You know what we do? We stay away from the purification because we're afraid of the nastiness coming to the top. What's the point? The nastiness coming to the top. If you define yourself by what's coming out of you instead of by what you are, in his eyes then you're never going to come for the purification because you're afraid of what he's going to bring out of you. But if you know that you are the gold and not the dross, then you're okay with coming for the purification because it's, the point is to get the dross out because you are valuable. Does this make sense? See, buying of Christ means we have value even in the effects of our sin in our life. God chose the currency that he wishes to receive to buy what is his. You don't get to change the currency. The currency is your brokenness. It's your, it's your failure. It's your, it's your screw-ups. It's your sin. It's the ashes of your life. It's the seasons where you may have done everything wrong. You thought you screwed absolutely everything up. Many don't come because they're afraid of God not receiving their currency of their ash. Yet it's exactly what he requires. The devil makes us us ashamed of what we've done. When what we've become is the criteria to receive what we desire. The devil makes us ashamed of what we've done. but, But what we've done, what we've done in sin, is the criteria to become what we desire. I don't have time to get into it, and I preached it... Long time ago, and it's on the website, but there's a message I I, I talked about in Ephesians. I went through every chapter in Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about being adopted into the Son and into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. And I proved in scripture that basically this 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 is a super small summary. If you never fell away, you would be in danger of falling away. But now that you've fallen away, and you've been adopted, you can no longer be disinherited. So, your falling away created a more sure position for you in the heart of God than if you had never fallen away at all. Because you can't divorce, you can't disown an adopted son. It's the same in our culture, it's the same in the Israeli culture. If you adopt a child, you cannot disinherit them, you can disinherit your own children but not the adopted. You're so worried about falling away, and your falling away is what actually brought you to him to a more sure understanding and solidity in the first place. What you despised joined you to him even more strongly. That's a good God. <laughs> you guys are boring. I'm I'm, I'm joking. Listen, you're always going to have something to offer the cross and the cross is always going to have something to offer you. You're never going to come to a point in your life where you're never going to be able to have the cross to offer to offer to to not offer the cross something. This is why Jesus said take up your cross daily. You're always going to have something to offer the cross and the cross is always going to have something to offer you. If you don't come to the cross because you're ashamed of what you have to offer, then you miss the whole point. And this goes back to sin-focused Christianity, which is of the devil. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I just committed sin. You have an advocate. You have blood. The moment you commit it, the moment it can be taken away. Just like that. Religion wants you to pay for your own crimes and tell you the cross isn't good enough. Now they'll never say that to you, but that's what they imply. Be a better Christian. Read, fast, pray more, and maybe you'll maybe you'll do better next time. And I'll close with this, and I've said it over and over, and I'll keep saying it until you finally believe it. You'll never be a good enough Christian for the devil. You can stand, please. I want to just let you know, if you come to this church for any length of time, I have one goal. Well, I have two. (laughs) First one's to glorify him. The second one is to tear down all the strongholds in your head that improperly define him. That's my goal. I grew up in religion, and it destroyed me. And I began to serve a God that He finally came to me and said, That's not me. And then I read that scripture in John 4, where he looks at the woman at the well and he says, You worship what you do not know. I thought, Oh my God, that's me. I thought just because I was worshiping that I was doing good. We got to know him. What does he require? He wants to give you beauty. But the only way to get it is if you give something that you despise, that you're ashamed of. Because we're not so happy about giving each other our junk. We feel bad about it, you know. God doesn't. He's okay with it. Does he want your good too? Sure. But he can't get your good until he gets your bad because the bad is constantly keeping you in focus of the good. When he gets your bad, then he's going to work on taking your good. And you're going to go, why is he taking everything from me? Because he gives you all of him. And he is your reward. So it doesn't matter what you lose. As long as you gain him, you have everything. Amen. So just with your hands, Father, I ask you to forgive me for not coming to you with the things that you require. These areas of my life where I have ash and I have failure and I have darkness and I have brokenness and I have sin, I know that you came to destroy the works of the devil. And in many areas of my life, I've actually been propagating the the works of darkness through disobedience and unbelief and not coming to your cross and not coming to you the way you you, you require me to. So I lay down my sin, I lay down my failure, I lay down my shame, I lay down the things I've done wrong. I lay down the fact that, that, um, that I'm not a good enough Christian and I constantly tell myself that constantly, that I, I, if I would loved you more, I would be better. That voice in my head that's not from you that I listen to, I lay it down and I lay it at your feet. And God, I'm asking you that you anoint my eyes that I might see and that you clothe my nakedness that my shame may not appear and that I would buy gold from you tried in the fire. And I surrender all the things that I'm ashamed of. And if you'll have me, Father, then take all of me. And I would not be deceived by me being stuck in the four walls of my home with you knocking on the outside. I open the door, Father, and I'm asking you to come in. And prepare whatever meal you want because you always make us eat in the presence of our enemies. I just, there's some people in here that are involved in some things that the Holy Spirit's not very fond of. And He's offering you a chance to lay it down so that He can give you something that's of value. But only you can lay it down. He's not going to pry it out of your hands. you want the last 15 years of your life to be like the next 15, then keep doing what you're doing. But if you want something to change, you need to come to the one who can change absolutely everything. If that's you, I just ask you to just talk to the Lord right now and say, Father, forgive me. And I don't know what to do with all this, but it's not my job. I'm just going to bring it to the cross, and I need you to forgive me, Holy Spirit, for sinning against you. Being involved in things that displeased your heart. And I offer you my ash, and I offer you my failure, and I offer you my pain, I offer you my doubt. Lord, I just ask that you move on their hearts and forgive their sin, wash it by the blood. Just let peace come back over their soul and their heart and their mind and reestablish the rest of God that they wouldn't strive with themselves concerning your relationship with you. I had a vision of somebody during worship this morning and I think it applies to more than one person. I think it applies to the whole church. But I saw this person holding a rope. It was like tug of war. And they were pulling with all their might. I mean, they were given everything they had. And I looked on the other side of the rope and it was them they were pulling against themselves and there was Jesus just standing there waiting for them to be done and I knew, it, I knew it represented their personal relationship with him they were trying to be so good and so they were trying to press in so deep and, and they were trying so hard and trying to love Jesus and Jesus is like "Man, my, my, my yoke is easy my burden is light some of you may need to drop the rope It's your job to surrender to his pursuit. That as he moves on you, you say, yes, Lord. Isaiah and Isaiah 6 didn't take the responsibility on by putting himself into the presence of God. God called him up there, and then when he was there, he was like, Lord, cleanse my lips. Send me. So the presence of the Lord is always to, to invite you to something greater than where you're at. If he meets you in your prayer closet, it's because he wants to take you higher. If he meets you at church service, it's because he's not interested in telling you that he's okay with your life as it is right now. He wants you to come deeper into him, and he doesn't want you to strive with yourself. He wants you to rest and just come because the invitation's there. How hard is it to open a door? You just open it. It's not locked. You hold the key. You hear him knocking, and you just say, yes, God. It's that simple. How do I do it? Don't worry about that part. He'll do that through you as you go. You just open the door and let him in. So, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your power and your love. We thank you that you have made this so simple. And we love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. I ask for your heart to be released to your people. And I ask for your grace to be upon them to establish the work you're working in them. And as they hear your voice, that they would open the door. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.